The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you now to turn your Bible to 2 Chronicles. Not a common book for preaching, but uh, I was in my devotions a few weeks ago and I came across this passage, not unfamiliar passage, and it just struck me in a fresh way and I wanted to preach on it. So here we are in between uh, Sunday night series. We're in 2 Chronicles 33. And a little background is a reminder that the kings of Judah... Uh, enjoyed, enjoyed the Davidic dynasty for almost 400 years. Almost 400 years, which was almost unheard of in the ancient world. And of course, the, the Davidic dynasty, the uh, history of kings of Israel and Judah, was a, a checkered history of several good kings and some not-so-good kings, some wicked ones. And our text uh, points out to us the fact that one of the worst kings of Judah followed one of the best. Uh, Manasseh followed his father, King Hezekiah. And it's in 2 Kings 21, the parallel passage to this text, indicts Manasseh as the worst king and lays on his shoulder the primary responsibility for sending Judah into exile. But here in 2 Chronicles, the author is less interested in indicting Judah for sin and exile or justifying the exile, but more aimed at encouraging Jews after the exile on how to move ahead, how to be God's people back in the promised land, and includes this story of Manasseh's repentance, his return to the Lord. And it raises a question for us, can people change? Especially people who once walked with Christ, who walk away from the Lord, can they change? Let us read Second Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 20. Manasseh was 12 years old when he was, began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherahs, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever 
And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and said to his, and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon him the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. The Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate. And he carried it around awful, and he raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. And all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And I will end there for time's sake. But let's ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Father, we would ask that you would strengthen us from your word. Give us insight and understanding. Lead us to the cross. Help us to find refuge there. And may you give us your spirit to walk before you in holiness and purity for your glory and by your grace. Amen. Can people change? People who have been unfaithful to their spouses. People who are addicted to drugs, alcohol, various scandalous sins, physical, verbal abusers, liars and manipulators, thieves and drug dealers, those who commit crimes and end up in prison. What about most of us, people who tend to struggle with more common sins of people-pleasing, fear of man, gossip, and boasting, a critical spirit, you and I, as we wrestle with ongoing begetting sin. And if we can change, how can we change? Many of you, I suppose, may recall the late Chuck Colson, who had served in President Nixon's administration decades ago, who was indicted for crimes, who served a prison term, but came out a changed man. He soon thereafter wrote the book Born Again, giving his testimony, sharing about his coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He went on to write many other books and started up a world-known ministry, Prison Fellowship. Author Eric Metaxas in his book Seven Men, The Seeker of the Greatness, chronicles how Chuck Colson... For, for many people that knew him, 
before his Christian experience, knew him as a ruthless man, viciously attacking his political enemies. And many of those same people were skeptical that he ever really did change, even up to the time of his death a few years ago. Some people are eager to embrace the prospect that people can change. Others are skeptical. The prospect of people changing is met with cynicism, despair, and apathy on the one hand, but wishful thinking and naivete on the other hand. Biblically speaking, it is only by the power of God's grace that people have what they need to truly change in the sight of God. It's God's grace that gives people real hope for repentance unto life. Our text tells us that Manasseh came to power and it was near the end of the long line of the Davidic dynasty. He assumed the throne at the young age of 12 and enjoyed the longest reign of any Israelite or Judean king, 55 years. And as scholars put together all the details, it, it appears that he, had a, he was a co-regent with his father Hezekiah for perhaps as many as 10 years. Hezekiah may not have died until Manasseh was about 22, a young man. Now, Hezekiah had built a reputation as one of the most faithful kings in Israel's history, oftentimes compared to King David, the standard bearer. Hezekiah had followed his father Ahaz, a faithless idolater. And so in his first year, Hezekiah cleansed the temple and restored the worship of God. He reinstituted the Passover and the annual feast. Hezekiah reformed and strengthened the priesthood. But then Hezekiah faced the greatest threat Judah had seen in centuries, the oncoming slaughter of the Assyrian Empire. God responded to the faith of Judah's king and its people by delivering them from the hand of the king of Assyria with a mighty blow. And yet there remained one blemish, at least, on Hezekiah's record, an issue of pride late in life, whereby he showed off his wealth to Babylonian envoys coming to visit him. God, through Isaiah the prophet, rebuked Hezekiah, telling him that one day the Babylonians would return to sack the city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah, in his response, offers either mere relief or perhaps real gratitude. The text, scholars tell us, is unclear. But at least this would not happen in his life, but for a future time. Verse 2 of our text tells us, in summary, that Manasseh's reign was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did all the abominations of the nations the Lord had driven out of the promised land. Perhaps Manasseh was a proud, wicked boy who grew up to be an evil ruler. Perhaps he suffered from assuming and gaining power so young, perhaps with a father too ill and too aged to train him and set him straight. Had Hezekiah been a neglectful father, 
as was all too often the case in many Old Testament examples, we think of Eli and David, two very godly men who had a poor track record in raising up wicked sons. Hezekiah had risen above his father Ahaz's example, much like Jonathan, who outgrew King Saul, a very selfish and insecure man. Perhaps Hezekiah did train Manasseh to walk with God. And perhaps he turned away from the Lord after Hezekiah died. We don't know the details of this king's upbringing or who and what influenced the shaping of his character. But we do know that God's judgment was looming over a people guilty of idolatry and of violating God's covenant. It says in the prior chapter that God had left Hezekiah for a time to test him. Perhaps now God had left King Manasseh to test Judah. It turns out a faithless people got what they deserved. We can speculate all we want about the whys and the hows and the backgrounds, but I believe it is more helpful to look specifically at what this king actually did in verses 3 through 9. Our text tells us that this king rebuilt the high places that his father had torn down, that he erected altars to the fertility gods, Baal and Asherah. He worshipped and served the stars. His grandfather had built up false altars, and his father had torn them down, and now he comes along and rebuilds them oscillating back and forth between unfaithfulness and faithfulness. But verses 4 and 5 of our text are the most indicting. Manasseh built false altars inside the temple and in the outer courts. In the very place that the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. This act of rejecting the Lord his God leads to all of these following detestable practices. Manasseh burned his own sons in service to pagan gods. He consulted fortune tellers. He sought omens. He engaged in sorcery. He hired mediums and necromancers to gain insight from the dead. In fact, this list of evil deeds follows almost word for word the warning from Deuteronomy 18. Warning and declaring what God's people would do in violation of God's covenant with them. Consequently, the Lord was provoked to much anger. But even after all these detestable deeds, it's verse 7 that returns us to the core theme. It was the setting up of a carved image, an idol, in the house that David and Solomon had built that was most offensive to the Lord God. This repeated refrain referring to the temple of where God had put his name forever and would remain and his people would remain there if they indeed were careful to do everything commanded in the law of Moses. Verse 9 says that this king led Judah and Jerusalem astray to do more evil than all the nations that had been purged by Moses and Joshua. 
as I reflected upon Manasseh's apostate prodigal ways, I've concluded that much of his sin problem had to do with control and insecurity. And it parallels my experience with many prodigals, those who leave the faith sharing a common characteristic for various reasons. The, the home in which Manasseh grew up in, his relationship to his father and to other authority figures, that the nature of the power that he inherited, and perhaps many other factors as well, led him to become a very insecure man who sought idolatrous, evil ways in vain to attempt to fill up the void within his fallen heart. Here was a man who lived in fear, consumed with self-protection to minimize his losses to avoid pain. He apparently responded to the pressures of other people's expectations, the administrative burden and duties by graining in deep patterns and practices of deceit, manipulation, seeking to control his little world in service to false gods and in experimenting with the occult. As we look at God's prohibition, against idolatry and witchcraft and sorcery, of worshiping false gods, of fortune-telling and other pagan practices, we find that these things are not only immoral, which they are, but they are a clear rejection of him as a sovereign and good creator, the one who is owed worship and devotion and who is the only redeemer of God's people. All of these lesser things, these supposed tame things that are apparently easier to control, are seized upon by prodigals to predict outcomes, to be less accountable, to stay in the driver's seat. All of these practices are a sign, are a symptom of turning away from the one true source of life, Seeking to feed and quench one's soul on empty nothings that cannot fulfill, cannot satisfy, cannot deliver, but only leave the abuser hung out to dry, empty. Manasseh thought that he could control his world to protect and secure himself. He could not live up to his father's standards. He bowed down to false gods. He sacrificed his sons to prove himself his devotion to these empty gods. He rejected godly counsel and sought advice from the dead through spiritists and mediums. He was like Esau, who traded his birthright for a cup of soup, a mere meal for a day. He is like Saul, who despaired of ever doing anything right before the living God, seeking consolation and hope from the dead. I'm convinced that prodigals have performance anxiety, have major issues with control. Covenant children who drift away or perhaps run adamantly away from God oftentimes feel like they cannot measure up to the standards of godliness that their parents or their church community set for them. My best friend in high school was a leader in youth group, a worship leader, an outgoing, gregarious 
man committed to evangelism. And when he fell into sexual sin in college, he was confronted by the church and has left the faith, never to return. For various reasons. Poor teaching, poor modeling from the Christian community, or even the sinner's own flawed misinterpretation, prodigals see the Christian life as nothing more than rules and regulations and impossible standards that they cannot live up to. They believe that God can never be pleased. Or perhaps it's a spiritual community that can never be pleased or satisfied. And while that may be true with flawed human beings, that's inaccurate, an inaccurate view of the living God. In contrast to the false gods who can never be pleased, but who can be manipulated, the true God is easily pleased, but cannot be controlled, cannot be controlled or manipulated. Yes, God's ultimate standard is impossible for you and I to meet. We cannot perfectly fulfill God's law. His holiness and our depravity leave a great gulf, impassable by sinful man. And for that reason, God sent his son to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, to fulfill what we could not, to pay our debt, to satisfy righteousness, to grant us access into the throne room of God that we might receive the abundant love of the Father that nothing in this world can ever take away from us. Other prodigals find grace offensive, preferring to do it their own way, committed to their own self-salvation project. As you think about the prodigals in your life, an adult child, a long-lost brother or sister, a black sheep of the family, a friend who used to walk with you hand-in-hand hand with the Lord, a co-worker, a neighbor who's no longer attending worship. I urge you to see them as God sees them, as lost and hurting people trying to make life work on their own. Such persons are running, rebelling to their own hurt and oftentimes the hurt of others. Such people need the truth and grace, boldness and compassion. They need a re-education about the gospel, a renewed understanding of the true God who loves us with an everlasting love, who pursues us to the ends of the earth, who does not expect from us perfection, but does require of us to humble ourselves to receive his grace will discipline us with trials. As you consider how to relate to, how to pray for prodigals, you don't need to recognize our limits. There are certain things that we just can't do. We can't fix them. We cannot change them. We cannot shake enough sense into someone who is running away from God. Our attempts to argue, to manipulate them, to give them ultimatums, to somehow steer them back onto the pathway of righteousness, don't often turn out very well. But you can pray. You can model. You can seek to influence them towards Christ. And you, cannot, you and I cannot do what only God can do. 
And so now we turn next to see how God gets the attention of this prodigal to turn him back from his rebellious ways. It says in verse 10 that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and the people of Judah, but they paid no attention to him. Chapter 21 of 2 Kings clarifies further that it was his servants, the prophets, that God sent to warn them of coming doom and destruction as consequence for their idolatry and immorality. And yet the king and the people ignore the warning and refuse to embrace the provision that should they repent, God would relent and turn back from his judgment, as we see in the case of the Ninevites. We can warn prodigals of hell. Warn them of the suffering, both temporally and eternally, that are the consequences of sin. And yet that heart will remain hard, rejecting, full of apathy and self-justification, perhaps even pretend repentance for a time without the working of God and the power of His grace. Without so, there will be no change. Manasseh, when he failed to respond to his, God's prophets, God sent the Babylonians. In verse 11 here, referred to as the Assyrians, who are now ruled by the Babylonians, You see, when prodigals reject the counsel of friends, God sends them enemies. Manasseh was captured and carted off to Babylon with hooks and chains. He acted like a beast, so he was treated like one with a hook through the nose. He acted like a criminal, so he was treated like one with shackles around his ankles. He could no longer run from God. How would this prodigal respond? Would he rail at God? Would he spit in the face of the king of Babylon? Would he wallow in self-pity, vindicate himself, demand his rights, curse God and die? Thankfully, verse 12 tells us that in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God. He humbled himself greatly. He prayed. Manasseh came to the end of himself. He had lost his throne His family, his wealth, his dignity, like many prodigals before and after, he hit rock bottom. He was no longer in control. All pretense of security was removed. He was naked. And yet this act of judgment and discipline was a mercy to him. You see, what prodigals oftentimes need is for the veneer of control and security to be stripped away. And that is something that only God can do. You and I cannot orchestrate that in anybody else's life, nor should we attempt it. This man, when he had nothing else to turn to, he turned back to God, the very one who had taken everything away from him. He remembered the Lord God who had delivered his father, who had responded to the cries of his people and showed them mercy, perhaps tired of serving idols. He was ready to turn back and serve the living and loving true God. Now, verse 13 gives us God's response to the king's prayer. The ESV and NIV translations say that God was moved in response and granted the request, the Hebrew here is 
tells us that simply that God was entreated by Manasseh. And the translators go a step further by offering their own interpretation that God here was moved to pity, which is a common phrase that Old Testament describes God's response to his people when they cry out to him in their distress. Suffering the consequences of their sin and rebellion and now crying out to God for mercy and deliverance. Parents will send an insolent child to his or her bedroom. And there they may scream and wail in rebellion for a time, and the parents just leave them there, giving them time to calm down, to come back to their senses, and when they assume a softer tone. That demonstrates respect. Perhaps they will then let the animal out of the cage again. I believe there's a similar dynamic happening here. God using tough love. God hitting Manasseh where it hurts is a man who needs two-by-four theology right between the eyes. A man who just couldn't get it without severe suffering to his own person. The question, though, remains, at least in my mind, as to whether or not Manasseh was truly repentant. Some people would argue that his humility, his prayer, God's answer to his prayer, the fact that he returns to Jerusalem, he cleans the house of God of idols, restores worship, that indicates that he truly was repentant. Verse 13 does say that Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. The skeptic might argue that he simply acknowledged the folly of false gods as being empty, point out other places where in Scripture God appears to be impressed with the repentance of Ahab. Remember, Ahab had killed Naboth, taken his vineyard, and after being rebuked by Elijah the prophet, Ahab humbled himself. And God said, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me, choosing to delay judgment for a generation or so. God certainly got the attention of King Nebuchadnezzar, turning him into a beast to teach him a lesson about who truly possessed all the glory. King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that the Lord was the mightiest God. And yet many question whether Nebuchadnezzar was truly converted. For Father Jacob, a liar, a manipulator, a prodigal in many ways, whom God taught with tough love, later in life did turn back, did cast out his household idols and appeared to worship and serve the God who had loved him and pursued him his whole life. I believe the difficulty with the return of prodigals is that many of them have deep patterns of control and manipulation, of putting on appearances, making it very hard to tell whether repentance is true or false. I've included in such situations that it is better to take such a person at his or her word and then hold them to it. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. That oftentimes takes time and careful observation to confirm that repentance is genuine. Change is slow. 
And oftentimes it's ongoing trials that will prove whether repentance and change is real. See, prodigals don't often return from the far country unless they suffer significant consequences to their sin or experience some other kind of trial that gets their attention. You know, we may not know till we're in glory whether Manasseh is a resident in the city of God. Perhaps when we arrive, we will find him in the company of scores of other prodigals from throughout history. I expect it'll be a mixed bag, filled with surprises, people that we did not expect, and others missing whom we did expect. For our part, we, I believe, are called by God to love prodigals, to pray for them, to pursue them, to speak God's truth and love to them. We must guard against a judgmental, presumptive attitude. We must also guard against despair. I've known parents who have left the faith in response to their children abandoning the faith. Prodigals can take their loved ones with them, those who appeared to be walking with God for a time, but whose faith proved superficial, attached only to the things of this world rather than the cross of Christ. We also must guard against wishful thinking of being naive, Many prodigals need real conversion. They all need repentance and the grace of God in Christ. But in conclusion here, I'd like to offer a couple things. I I believe that you and I have much to learn from prodigals. What What is it that we can learn from such persons? Well, I believe that prodigals reveal the true condition of our hearts. I've already mentioned that Manasseh had issues of insecurity and control. Rather than trust God, he chose to prove himself and manage life, seeking to control his circumstances to know the future through godless means. He lived to protect himself, but lost himself. He reminds us of the words of Jesus, he who saves his life will lose it. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, we find that we too have prodigal hearts. As the hymn writer says, hearts that are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. You and I have issues of control. Most of us are deeply insecure. Our faith at times is much smaller than a mustard seed. You and I use manipulative tactics to get what we want with people that we love. We seek to control and bargain with God in our prayer lives. Most of us live respectable lives where we put on the appearance of godliness but secretly hiding dark desires to indulge in the flesh. Many times our motive to pursue purity is driven more by the fear of man, our cowardice, our desire to preserve our reputation, rather than an earnest zeal for God's glory and a righteous pursuit of holiness. What would it take for you to stumble, to veer onto the prodigal path? A health crisis? 
the loss of a loved one, a financial or career disaster. Too many Christians walk dangerously close to the prodigal path, only a few trials away from capitulation. So what do we do? What do we do about our own prodigal hearts? Well, I'd like to observe and help us to understand something about God that is present here in this passage and that we find all throughout Scripture. This prodigal, Manasseh, who had thumbed his nose at God, who had indulged in pagan practice, who had indulged in idolatry, who had committed bloodshed, says the Second Kings 21, who had desecrated the house of God, the Lord pursued him. The Lord sent him trials to lead him to repentance. Driven by an unrelenting love for his people, God sent his prophets. And when they failed to listen to the prophets, God sent them trials, casting them into exile into the far country. And when that was not enough, God sent his son to seek and to save the lost the elder brother, to go into the far country and pick us up out of the pigsty and bring us back. Yes, confronting our sin. Yes, showing us its hideous nature by the cross, but they're also displaying the inexhaustible love of the Father through the Son's submission to suffering and death at the hands of wicked men. You know, I believe that God is interested in more than just setting us straight and making us walk right. I believe that God desires that we know how deeply he loves us and to show us the extent that he will go to deliver us and provide for our eternal redemption. For any and all prodigals in this room, let me assure you, There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more or make him love you any less than he already does in Christ. And for those of you who have loved ones who have gone astray from God, please be assured of God's love for you. And know that God wants to love you and he wants to use you to help share the message of his love, to pursue and go after those prodigals in your lives, to help woo them back, to re-educate them, to help them find a loving and welcoming home for all those who will humble themselves and cast their burdens upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace changes people. May we not be skeptical Nor may we be naive, but may we cling to a bold trust to our gracious God. Let the elder brother love you and use you to spread his gracious message near and far, to receive back all those whom the Lord will call for the praise of his glorious grace. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for sending your Son to seek and to save the lost, to woo back prodigals, to bring us home again, to cleanse us and to purify us, to grant us grace 
unto repentance, unto new life in Christ. Help us to be such a people and to display your marvelous grace and the great bounty of your love to others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.